Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to take the time with you to read from verse 1 on down to where our text is going to be. And I beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, now listen carefully, read carefully, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. We'll stop there at the 17th verse. Our text is in the 14th verse, and we're going to cover a few verses beyond that. But the title of this message is simply, Without Holiness. We read this in verse 14 that says that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We read in verse 10 that the chastening upon our lives, and you should read the other verses I've already read with you later to get the context, that the discipline and the stresses and the obstacles and whatever else we're facing, and it's a lot, is all designed to create in us the same spirit that was in Jesus. Now, we have the Holy Spirit, you say, and we'll get to that. But we must be conformed to the will of God. 
Now, we live, as you know, in a very, I would phrase it this way, an appallingly sick world. And the sickness of the world honestly does not affect me as much as the sickness inside the church, as I talk about so frequently. My friends, I know that you know this, but I'm just going to tell you. Everything that we believe depends on this book. From the first chapter of Genesis 1 and the first verse to the last verse of chapter 22, the book of the Revelation at verse 21. All 31,102 verses we depend upon for our code of behavior, for our faith, for what we believe, to know who Jesus is, let alone the Father and the Holy Spirit, God, the triune God. And on Twitter some, well, I guess it's almost a year ago now, there was a tweet put out by Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, who absolutely does not resemble his father theologically at all. Now, he deleted this tweet that I'm going to read to you, but this is what it said. Quote, The Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, the second part sounds good, but that first part is problematic. Stanley went on to say, and that's Andy, not Charles. For the first 350 years of Christianity, no preacher or teacher said the Bible says. There was no such thing as the Bible. Now, that's not true. Obviously, there was scripture, but they did not, especially in the first century, build the Christian faith on the back of a text. And that is emphatically not true. Nobody could read. Nobody owned one. What drove the first century Christians was an event, and he likes to talk much about the resurrection, but let me just interject so I don't forget, without the crucifixion, the resurrection doesn't mean anything. And then all of the other things that are known as the kerygma, the preaching of the gospel from the time the New Testament was written to today. And so Stanley went on to say, remember this is now deleted, the time has come for us to step back onto a more sure footing, and I think a firmer foundation. And to build our case, our congregations, and for this generation, which in quotes is millennials, means you were born in 2000, we're doing this for you because it's all about you. On the event of the resurrection and not the authenticity or the infallibility of a text. And it's not because I don't think the scripture is infallible, then all of a sudden you start to think, you say on medication? First of all, of course, we don't find the phrase the Bible says because this is the Bible. This is the book. It's God's book. And when we say the Bible, we mean the book. Jesus alone, in Matthew chapter 4, three times says, it is written. The Apostle Paul would often say, what saith the scripture? And just in case you're confused, and I'm not confused, somebody's confused. No, the word Bible wasn't used, but it is written was, and scripture was. And many of the things that pointed to the phrase that I use and we use today, the Bible says, because it's the same thing. I know one thing, if I made a statement and put it on Twitter, it's staying. I don't delete it. Or if I made a huge faux pas where I was really misunderstood, and I've done that, I've come back to you the week later and said, you know, last week I misspoke. I meant to say this and I said that. But I'm not going to go through the statements of so many men today and women in pulpits big platforms, massive crowds that do not retract what they have said, which either is A, what they said, is what they actually mean. For instance, when Stephen Furtick just recently, again a few months ago, said, I am God Almighty. 
Now, if I misspoke like that, I would retract it. But since I don't know of any retraction, then I don't know what he means. In any case, that's not my concern. My concern is the people I pastor. And for those who tune in who do not have a church, and this is their virtual church, and for those that listen on the radio for the same reason, that's my concern. Is that you understand that everything we believe does depend on the infallibility and the accuracy of a text. 31,102 of them. Now what's interesting is I was doing a study because I haven't done it in a while, of these teachers, because I lose track of who's out there and what they're saying, and I wanted to see what new kids were on the block. I came across a few. I'm not going to repeat all that's going on out there, but in addressing Stanley's remarks, remember a few years ago he said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Everything the apostles quoted was from the Old Testament, including Jesus. Anyway, he proposes to put a more sure foundation Let's see what the Bible says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That includes his resurrection. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, and there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now here's what you want to hear. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Let me just stop in case you don't understand what's going on here. Jesus is on the mount which we now call the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appear the voice of the Father comes down and says, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. Peter, John, and James are there. The idea is that Jesus is now the fulfillment of the law and other things. And Peter is recounting that. He says, We were there. We've seen this. Then he goes on to say something that we all need to know. He said, But we have a more sure word of prophecy than even that miraculous event that we all witnessed. What is it? Well, let's read it. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. It means the scriptures don't stand alone. They all stand together. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Peter here is saying, even though we witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, his deity, even though we saw Moses and Elijah, we're presenting to you something even more of a foundation. It's the written word of God. That's what he was saying. My friends and brothers and sisters, I'll guarantee you one person is not going to unhitch himself from the Bible, and that's me right here. I'm not unhitching myself from the Old Testament. I'm not going to denigrate the phrase the Bible says, because that's what this means. The Scripture says, as a matter of fact, and it was very uh, unintended when I was studying, first of all, on what some of these newer preachers are saying, what they're doing, because I was largely out of touch and happy at the moment. But I did another study that I hadn't done in a while, and this is something I did on my own. As far as the inspiration of Scripture, I want you to just to hear this. The word Lord, when you find it all in caps in our English Bible here, particularly the King James Bible, represents Jehovah. It's used 6,580 times when we see Jehovah written in caps, and there's a reason for that. 
It's four times in our English Bible. God, 4,106 times. Lord in caps, then God, Lord God, 229 times. Lord in lowercase, which is Adonai, in Hebrew, 1,145 times. These phrases, the Spirit of God, 26 times. The Spirit of the Lord, six times. The name of the Lord, 109 times. The name of God, these are all phrases. Six times. Oracles of God, three times. God said, 43 times. God spake, 13 times. The Lord spake, 144 times. Thus saith the Lord, 415 times. The Lord said, 219 times. The Lord commanded 104 times. Commandment of the Lord, 36 times. Commandments, plural of the Lord, 24 times. Word of the Lord, 258 times. Voice of the Lord, 50 times. Lord's voice, just reversing it once. Way of the Lord, 16 times. Ways of the Lord, 6 times. Lord appeared, 21 times. Hand of the Lord, 39 times. Thy word, 59 times. Lord Jesus, 118 times. Jesus Christ, 198 times. Christ Jesus, reversing it, 58 times. Scripture, 32 times. Scriptures, 21 times. And there's something wrong with saying the Bible says? But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, when it says, In perilous times shall come, you know, as well as I know, they have come. We are in them right now. And what we need to look for is not what sin is going on outside the world. That should be understood. But what's going inside the church? Just briefly, I want to tell you of a survey that was taken by a man, in case you don't know who he was, teacher, preacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. Some of you may know his name, Howard Hendricks. He's a great teacher. He took a survey some years back on pastors that fell into immorality. 264 surveys that he personally interviewed each pastor, 264 men. And after the survey, he found there was four things that caused the pastor. Now remember the pastor, he's driving the bus. If he decides to take a turn quickly into a ditch, everybody on the bus is going with him. That's allegorically speaking, but after doing the interviews personally with 264 pastors who had fallen into immorality, he found four things that were common. And I want to say to you that it's not only common to me in my calling as a pastor, but to all of us. Number one, none of the men was involved in any kind of real personal accountability. And I want to let you know that I am credentialed with a very large denomination by the name of the Independent Assemblies of God. So if you have a problem, you can call them up and we will talk. Number two, each of the men had all but seat. Listen to me now. 264 pastors, each of the men, each of them, had all but ceased having a daily time of personal prayer, Bible reading, and worship. And I have told you, now this, I didn't know this survey when I said what I said to you several times over the years. It is known that the majority of pastors don't read the Bible and they don't pray. Here the survey just validates what I've told you over the years. How do I know that? Because I'm a pastor. I know what a lot of these pastors are doing and I know what they're not doing. These are all common threads in all 264 pastors. <clears throat> Number three, more than 80% of the men became sexually involved with the other woman after spending significant time with her, often in counseling situations. Well, that's pretty easy to understand, but I can tell you this, for a preacher, counseling is a trap. You say, what do you mean? Don't you counsel? Yeah, yeah sure I do, yeah. But there was a time, like on a Saturday, I'd have counseling appointments lined up. would eat up most of my days so that, thankfully, I got a good memory and my prayer life is intact, in case you're wondering. And my Bible study is intact. And I'm making moves in my life to make sure it's even more intact. 
to make sure that when I come to this pulpit, you get the very best biblical meal that I can prepare. Some are better than me, and some are worse. But this pulpit will stay hot, God willing, because I'm willing. This pulpit's going to stay on fire with the word of God, and I will not permit my life to be distracted by anything or anyone. That's a fact. And if I had no other motive but the fact that I love you and those that listen, there's my own salvation. So that when I'm preaching to you, I myself am not cast away, as we have this here. But listen, listen. The fourth thing that Howard Hendricks found with these pastors, there was one common thread. And every single one of them had this same issue. Listen to me carefully. This is Howard Hendricks, not me. Without exception, each of the 246 pastors had been convinced that that sort of fall, quote, would never happen to me. Now, I've told you repeatedly about my own life. I'm a very candid person. Time for truth. The reason that I haven't fallen into gross sin is because I know I could. And when I found this here, I saw an application, not just for preachers, but for every one of you here. You say, that would never be me, and that's the first indication you're probably going to be next. How many people, like, I've been here a long time up in your neck of the woods. Come September the 27th of 2023, I'll have been here 36 years in this area. 36 years. Wasn't born here, but I'm one of you. I've watched people come, and I've watched them go. I've watched people who've made that statement, not me, who are not here today, and they're not in any church today, and they're not serving the Lord today, and if I had the audacity or the ill manners to name them, I could name them for you, but I won't. Of course I wouldn't do that. I'm saying that if you say to yourself, you'd never be one that defects from the Lord, you're likely the next candidate to defect. But if you have what we're going to talk about here, a knowledge of the holy, and how much we are dependent on him for everything, now you're likely to stay secure in your walk with the Lord and not defect. Quickly, I want to point out to you, if you read in Matthew chapter 10 at verse 1, later, Jesus gave authority to 12 apostles, all of whom cast out devils, healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead. 12 of them. Later, as Jesus names the apostles, we find one name on the list, Judas Iscariot. He did the same things the others did, but then he betrayed his master, maybe in his heart. Well, he was a thief to begin with, but maybe in his heart because he said, I'd never be one of them. Peter said that too, didn't he? I'd die for you. That's easy to say in the comfort of your living room or in your bedroom or when you're on one of these nice plush chairs that we supply for you. But it's not so easy when the devil and all hell is raging against you. Now, I want to tell you right now, this message has a surprise ending. So you're going to want to follow the train of thought all the way to the end and think about what I've just said to you. You say it wouldn't be you. I'm going to tell you by experience, this survey and my own experience, you're probably going to be the next. The problem is you may not know it. Listen to this. When it comes to the subject of holiness, that's our subject today. 43 times that word is used in the Bible, and holy is used 611 times. Look at the revelation that Isaiah has in chapter 6. As he sees the Lord, our Lord, the one we sang about today, the one we praise, when he sees the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 6, he's surrounded by angels, and one cried unto the other and said, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And immediately, Isaiah says, I am undone. We have a, what do we have? A plethora of people saying, I saw God, I saw God. But none of them cry out, I am unclean, I'm undone. Till the angel takes a coal off of the altar and 
quarter sizes his lips, Isaiah's lips. We go to the book of the Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The only attribute of God that we read in the Bible, beyond every single other attribute that is accented to the superlative, is the word holy. Holy, day and night, holy. If you're going to heaven, and I know that you have plans, when you're around the throne, get used to this. You're going to hear it cried out for eternity. Holy, 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 holy. And so we are exhorted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, to follow holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. This is a profound statement, in my view, and it was made by Augustine in the 4th century. It's terse, but it's profound. Listen to what Augustine wrote. You are my Lord because you have no need of my goodness. That's why we call him Lord. Not because he's our equal. I'm not going to be ever be saying to you this stupid statement that you're a God. We're all gods. Amen? I failed algebra twice. And you want me running the universe? And this silly... Uh, what do you call it, delusion that is touted in pulpits all across our country and around the world. He is God, you are God, we are gods. Well, the scripture says you're gods, but you'll die like men. God doesn't die. Augustine realized that you could add nothing to God. You say, I'm not going to praise, I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to worship. Did you really think that God misses that? Well, some you know, worship leaders, sometimes pastors too, yeah, they say, oh, God needs your worship. God needs nothing. And he doesn't need us either. That's why we're saved by grace. Let me say this again from Augustine. You are my Lord because you have no need of my goodness. But in his confessions, his autobiography, he'll go on to talk about, you don't need me to cultivate the land as though, and he goes on and on to say that God is God. God has done us the favor of calling us sin. So that we can say we're saved. Now, the challenge is improving it. And so here we read in Hebrews chapter 12, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. When we read in Romans chapter 8 in particular, we are told that we have been given the same spirit that Jesus Christ has, second person of the Trinity. Now, as I've pointed out to you on many occasions, on the binding of your Bible that are in our pews, it says holy. This is no ordinary book. This is not written by Herman Melville. This is not Moby Dick. This is a book written by God, the one that Stanley is saying, time we have a more sure foundation. I truly pity those sitting under his teaching. This is the book. It's God's book. And again, this message is going to have a surprise ending because everyone makes the assumption, you die, you go to heaven. Well, you say, no, I'm not in that class of people. But you have to be a Christian. You have to follow Christ. You would do well to read the revivals of Charles Finney and what happened in this area when the gospel was actually preached and taught. Well, it's a long time ago now. And Finney talked about Christians in politics. In fact, C.S. Lewis did as well. In his book, 
Now, Lewis's book, he talked about, that's one of the strategies, which I've mentioned to you, I just mentioned to you briefly, is to make the mistake that God is with my political party. Well, in America, I think everybody believes God is with their political party. Well, the news is he's not in any political party. He's God. And Finney talked about voting for honest and godly men, which that may seem almost impossible in this age now. He also talked that if we didn't, God would curse our nation. That's going back into the 19th century, and I think that he may have been right. But he wrote this. When a good godly man is elected to political office, he said it would only be a matter of time that they would be talked about in taverns, published in newspapers, when any man set up as a candidate for office, what a good man he is, how moral, how pious. But he went on to say, and any political party would no more set up a known Sabbath breaker or a gambler or a profane swearer or a rum seller as their candidate for office than they would set up the devil himself for president of the United States. And I'm not going to carry this too far. But I believe that's what we have. You say, well, how could you say something like that? Well, because I know that devils can possess men. And that's, you know, I'm not going to go on to a political speech. Because America needs Jesus. America needs the gospel. America doesn't need preachers like Stanley are telling us to unhitch from the Old Testament. Don't worry about the text. It's not the accuracy. Every single thing that we do depends on the accuracy of these texts. Amen. Every single thing. And by the way, let me say something about millennials. We've got a few in here. You were born after the year 2000. The ones that I'm running into, these young people, they don't want the junk. They don't want the soft life. Well, I'm not saying everybody, but a lot that I'm meeting, they want it plain. They want it, you know, I don't know what people come up with. Anyway, God hasn't changed. Man hasn't changed. Okay, what age they are. Satan hasn't changed. But he wrote these words again. This is Finney. He says, the dishonesty of the church is cursing the world. I'm not going to preach a political sermon, he says here, but I want to show you that if you mean to impress men favorably to your religion, which is Christianity, by your lives, you must be honest, strictly honest, in business politics, and everything you do. What do you suppose those ungodly politicians who know themselves to be playing a dishonest game? And that's written in 1880-something. So if you think things have changed, they haven't. The politicians who play us as Christians for our votes, not all, but many of them know they're playing us. They're just playing us. I told you about David Kuo, who's now passed away, <laughs> Tempting Faith, another good book to read. Finney said it long before he experienced it. What do you suppose these ungodly politicians who know themselves to be playing a dishonest game and carrying an election think of your religion when they see you uniting with them? This is Finney. They know you are a hypocrite. And so we're taught to follow holiness, the character and nature of God, which we read from Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4. What it is not is adding things to the Bible. Women cannot wear lipstick because it's unholy. But I've heard it said, if the barn needs painting, then paint it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know I'm in trouble, but... (laughs) That's what it's not. But then again, it's not looking like Jezebel. Because men, in their attempt to live a holy life, sometimes add to the word of God, which we are forbidden to do. Holiness is taking on the character and nature of of Jesus, not just in words. Because look at people in the world, maybe they don't know Christ, they don't know the Bible, but they know honesty and dishonesty. They know a poser and a possessor. And we take on the nature of Christ, but not just simply in a statement, day by day, in a process that's called sanctification, 
We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is working on us, changing us daily, all the time, into the image and likeness of Jesus. Read Matthew, excuse me, read Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Yes, and we all know that everything works together for good for them that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Some Christians, that's as far as they go. Read verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, then did he also conform to the image of his son. That's God's plan for every single one of you here. Everyone. There's no exceptions. Every single one. The chastisement we read about is to produce the holy life in actuality. As God gives us everything. We supply nothing. God gives us everything. And we're taught to follow it. Look at verse 15 now. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, I know that some are impressed that there's no way in the world you can fail the grace of God, but that's what the text says. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And I want to make a note about that. In the many mistakes I've made in my life and my ministry, in my attempt to be merciful, which is still how I try to conduct myself, I made the mistake of letting people who are doing little wrongs just keep on going and ruin the congregation. My apologies for that. I thought I was doing the right thing. But I'm wiser and I'm older now. It's not going to happen. We have more than one woman, there just happened to be women, who had a very, very bitter spirit. And exactly what this text says, it just spread like a cancer, little by little, through the church, until some of it had to be just cut off. But that's bitterness, which is opposed, by the way, to holiness. We are to look diligently. If you've ever lost something, and I know that you have, something that's really important, you don't just look haphazardly. You look diligently. You're really paying attention. Could be your wallet. Your car keys, or whatever it may be. A child. What parent doesn't have their heart stricken with panic when they lose sight of a child in a crowded mall or on a crowded beach or something? You're stricken with panic and you look diligently for that child. And we're told to look diligently after the Lord and His holiness that we don't come short. I introduced you to William Gurnall last week, I believe for the first time, and his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. It's a big, thick book. If you get the original copy, you're going to come into all these old English words that so many people grouse about. I was told that someone left our church some years ago because Pastor Ray uses big words. (laughs) You see, one of my purposes is to elevate your intellect, to make you think. That doesn't always work out so well, but that's my goal. A good trainer tries to get you always to produce a bit more, get a bit more out of you in athletics. In any case, William Gurnall... In the same book I recommended to you last week, The Christian in Complete Armor, he wrote this about what we know as secret sins. And they're secret because no one knows about them. So he said this, Soul, take thy lust, thy only lust, which is the child of thy dearest love, thy Isaac, the sin which has caused most joy and laughter, from which thou hast promised thyself the greatest return of pleasure or profit, as ever thou lookest to see my face with comfort, lay hands on it. This is talking about secret sin or sins. Lay hands on it and offer it up. Pour out the blood of it before me. Run the sacrificing knife of mortification, which means death, into the very heart of it. And this freely, joyfully, for it is no pleasing sacrifice that is offered with a countenance cast down. And all this now before thou hast one embrace. More from it, a secret sin. Now listen to this, this is profound. It's the heart of the person crying out. It is but a little one, 
Oh, spare it, and thy soul shall live for all that. Another, while he flatters the soul with the secrecy of it, thou mayest keep me and thy credit also. That's a great statement. I can sin in secret, and everybody still think, Pastor Ray is just whatever. But it's not just for me. It's for all of you. You kept your credit with men, but now God seest me. And listen to me. What happens with true Christians when they have secret sins, unconfessed, and God deals with them little and by little and by little, eventually, in his mercy, believe it or not, in his mercy, he exposes it publicly. Now, we don't like that chastening, but it's always for our benefit. God gains nothing. Gernal went on to say, Shut me up, the secret sin, shut me up in the most retired room thou hast in thy heart, from the hearing of others, if thou wilt only let me now and then have the wanton embraces of thy thoughts and affections in secret. Secret sins. This is a Puritan who is promoting follow holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. I don't know everything about you, and you don't know everything about me. But my ambition is, and I hope that yours is, that no matter whether it's day or night, whenever that time comes, we're always found the same. That there's no playing to the, you know, preachers, you hear preachers, you're you're preaching to the choir, uh, meaning basically you're not saying anything that we don't know. But this here, I think, is really the issue. It's not what we can see. It's not what we can say, well, you know, this is, it's what we kept inside. Oh, and I think the first thing goes back to the immorality of preachers and other people, you know, sexual sins. But what about pride? Did you never read that pride and arrogance, the Lord hates it? I have discovered in my life, in watching people, the people who cannot say, I'm sorry, may have a much bigger issue than they ever imagined. Because without humility, you can't seek the Lord. And humility means uttering two words that for some, it's not for me. When I make a mistake, I don't think it's a big deal. It's just like, I'm sorry. I made a phone call one time. Phone calls, plural, to everybody I thought I offended. It took me hours. It's the truth. Even someone was surprised, like, why are you calling me up? I said, well, you remember, I wanted to clear my conscience. I didn't want to hold things in secret. And I'm saying that we look at the bigger sins, but what about those with the pride and the arrogance? The Lord hates them. And if we believe in the literal inspiration of Scripture, when God says he hates something, he hates it. William Law, another great preacher, said, Although the goodness of God with his rich mercies in Christ Jesus are a sufficient assurance to us that he will be merciful to our unavoidable weaknesses and infirmities, that is, to such failings as are the effects of ignorance or surprise. In other words, God forgives us of our sins. Yet we have no reason to expect the same mercy towards those sins which we have lived in through a want of intention to avoid them. I'll give you an example from my life. I recorded a movie that came out when I was in the 8th or ninth grade. I never saw it. Academy Award winning and so on. And I said, yeah, I never really actually saw this movie. So I recorded it. My friends, I wasn't only 15 minutes into that movie. I said, there's no way I could watch this. There's no way I would. I just deleted it. Just deleted it. I don't even want the temptation to say, well, you know, it does have some good points. For me, it had no good points. It was just a constant lure of deception of all kinds of things that are against God's word. So I just deleted it. I'm not going to put myself in the position, again, I'm being honest with you as I reflect on my life, of having the smallest amount of compromise, which you may never find out about. But thou God seest me. And you can be sure if he sees me, he sees you as well. Look with me. When this text here, verse 15 says, 
They fail of the grace of God. Look at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator. Now, Hollywood uses this word, bandy it about with humor. The Bible doesn't. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, listen, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. We'll call it one sin. Just one. The one he would not let go of. I mean, even Abraham let go of Isaac in intent. But we're warned not to sell your birthright in Christ, which we talk about, of course, here in the pulpit and in their fellowships, for one thing that you held out. One thing. Well, there's a young man who came to Christ. He had a lot of wealth, and he came to Jesus, and he says, you know, I keep all the commandments. I tithe, give to the poor, do this and that and the other thing, and all these things. What else do I lack? And Jesus said to him, only one thing. Only one thing. Take what you have, sell it all, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler wouldn't do it. Now, what became of his fate ultimately? The Bible doesn't say. I don't know. But there was just one thing that kept him from the list of apostles, whose name we would have known all throughout these 2,000 years. But he's not named in the Bible because there was one thing that kept him from being, as I've told you before, all in. Not one foot in, all in. What a shame to have one thing holding you back from the blessings of God, from the assurance. In fact, when I opened the hymn, though, I told you, it just happened to open up to my favorite hymn. It wasn't by design. On the other page was blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. And if he is yours, then don't let one thing hold you back. You know you're imperfect. You know your pastor's imperfect. So I would suggest that you treat one another with a whole lot of mercy. While we exhort one another, that's the reason we're assembled here today, in case you're not aware. That is in the book Hebrews 2. You're being exhorted. You're being reminded. That's why we assemble. He sold out. Esau sold out because of his temporary hunger, which he could have easily just prayed to the Lord. He was tempted. And he said, well, what good is my birthright going to do me if I, if I die of hunger? So sells his birthright to his brother. Well, things didn't work out very well from that point on. Look at verse 17. Speaking of Esau, for ye know how that afterward, this is Esau, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. If you remember from the book of Genesis, oh, I forgot, we're unhitched from the Old Testament. <laughs> if you remember the story from Genesis, Esau went to his father, Isaac. And he realized he had given away his birthright, had given away the blessing, you know, because Jacob came in and took it from the father. And he was crying. Has thou not a blessing for me? Don't you have anything left for me? Well, he did receive a blessing, but he didn't receive the blessing. Why? He sold it. He sold out. He sold out for one bowl of pottage, whatever it was. What difference does it make what it was? He sold it instead of obeying God. You know as well as I know. We're reading the news. We're watching. We've got balloons flying over our country with the stupidest explanation given to Americans. I guess everybody thinks every American is brain dead. We've got balloons flying over our country, taking pictures of what we're doing and who knows what else. And take it from there of what should have been done, what eventually was done and all this. That's not really not my point. My point is that we're seeing the exact same signs that happened to Israel when they rejected God. It was judgment coming little and by little and by little and by little. And you think that it's going to stop? It's going to, not going to stop. It's going to get worse. 
We've relied on just saluting the flag way too much. This is one nation under God. Not simply one nation, one nation under God. So I want to exhort you today to get before the Lord and prayer, private prayer, daily prayer. is so convenient because you can do it anywhere and everywhere. And the Bible says pray without ceasing. That's when you're driving and you're working and wherever you are. And read the word of God. The Bible. Read the word of God. Read the Bible. Memorize it. Know its contents. And know what God is requiring of you. And so we see the signs, and this is what I wanted to say. So we see the signs, and what does that mean but to get prepared? We had a visitor at our house many years ago, many, many years ago. I don't even know if we had children at the time. That's how long ago it was. It was one of my elders who I did really love and respect. Well, he said he'd be there, let's say, 1 or 1.30. A knock came on the door a half an hour before he was supposed to be there. I just happened to be taking a bath. And my wife came in, boom, the door flew open. He's here. <laughs> I said, who's here? And then she named him. I said, well, then let him in. But he's not supposed to be here. You know, yet. Yeah, she wasn't prepared. Well, I wasn't prepared. If I can't walk out and greet him, I'm in a tub. But Jesus said that he was going to come in an hour when people were not prepared. That the signs would have passed them by. Now, let's just go back to this here. Let's say I could have clipped onto his jacket back in those days. There wasn't a GPS. But let's say I could have clipped on his jacket a GPS and say, you know what? He's going to be here half an hour early. Let's get prepared. I would have been all dressed, cologned and everything. But I wasn't. I wasn't prepared to receive him. My wife wasn't prepared to receive him. But in he came. I mean, he didn't walk in, but he was let in. So I said, let him in. We know. Would you agree with me that Christ is coming? Amen. That we're going to prepare to meet him. And this is how we're going to prepare. By looking at the texts and reading the texts and remembering that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. And you know the rest. And here's the surprise that I have for you. We look at people and, I mean, people look at people and we admire successful people. Your palette for success may be different than mine. Some look at money, some look at, I don't know accomplishments in their fields. But in 1969, I was just not even quite 16 years old. Myself and two of my friends, we cut school. We did what we usually did. We went down to New York City. We didn't do anything bad, just hung around, whatever we did, just. We went into an arcade, and playing a little pinball, and out of the old photograph booths, remember where you get four of those little pictures on a strip? The curtain goes back, and out comes this monster, six feet, four inches tall. Looked like a sculpture you'd see in Greece, except he was black. And immediately we knew who this was. It was George Foreman. And I always loved George. I still love him to this day. I loved the way he waved that American flag after his win in Mexico City in 1968. And he was coming out of the photo booth because he was going to get his first professional boxing license to fight in New York. And then, of course, the rest is history, as they say. He's the oldest heavyweight champion to win it back at age 45. And so I always admired him. And a friend and I, who I talked to each week, we were talking about that event. He was there that day, cut school as well. And we were talking about just how nice a man he was. At the time, Foreman would have been 21 years old or something like that. And just how impressed we were with his, you know, his politeness and his, everything about him was just impressive. He's a big man. 
And then, then we got into a little talk with him, and we gave his autographs. I have it somewhere, I guess. George Foreman. But what I did not know was that, well, less than 10 years later, in a fight that he had with Jimmy Young in Puerto Rico, a fight that he lost because Don King recommended to him, carry this guy for a while, let's make this fight interesting. And Foreman carried him until Young got a second wind and decided, I could beat this guy, and he did. Foreman tells the story, George Foreman tells this story in the book, God in My Corner. I want you to pay attention to this. He went back to the dressing room, and he was just walking back and forth to cool off. And he kept saying to himself, it's no big deal, I lost the fight, who cares? I got money, I got riches, I got homes, I got cars, and on and on. Laid down on the table in front of his doctor, his masseuse, trainer, all that stuff, and his heart stopped. How old could he have been? In his 20s? Early 30s? And here, in his own words, he explains what happened next. Instantly, I was transported into a deep, dark void, like a bottomless pit. If there's a place called nowhere, this was it. I was suspended in emptiness with nothing over my head or under my feet. I lost my perception of direction and didn't know which way was up and which was down. This was a place of total isolation, cut off from everything and everyone. It can only be described as a vacant space of extreme hopelessness by being dropped in the Atlantic Ocean with nothing to grab onto, a thousand miles from the shore. I knew I was dead, and this wasn't heaven. This is George Foreman speaking. I was terrified, knowing I had no way out. Sorrow beyond description engulfed my soul more than anyone could ever imagine. If you multiplied every disturbing and frightening thought that you've ever had during your entire life, that wouldn't come close to the panic I felt. Total darkness surrounded me. I was drifting like an astronaut cut off from a spacecraft, all alone in the complete darkness of outer space, but with no planets, moons, or stars as light or reference points. Even that would be better than where I was. Although I couldn't see anyone, I was aware of other people in this terrible place. I was unable to contact them because in this void where there was no light, I sensed that relationships didn't exist. The place reeked with the putrid smell of death. It's difficult to describe the awful foul stench. If you've ever been to a dump yard and smelled the decaying odors, just multiply that stomach-wrenching smell a thousand times. You can't forget it. The offensive odor was so revolting that I still vividly remember it to this day. Everything that I ever worked for, my money, cars, and houses, meant nothing to me anymore. What good were they to me here? No earthly fortune can satisfy someone who is trapped in solitary confinement and can't see anything. It was utter darkness. This place was a vacuum without light, love, or happiness. I was so frightened that I didn't want even my worst enemies to experience it. No one ever could have done anything to me that was so bad that I wished them to come here. I couldn't compare my feelings of hopelessness to any earthly experience. It wasn't like a temporary jail sentence where one day I'd be let out. I couldn't say, this is the worst place imaginable, but I can get out of here tomorrow, or next week, or next month. In that place, I had no hope for tomorrow or of ever getting out. I truly thought that this was the end of my life. And I saw, too late, that I had missed what life was meant to be about. At that realization, as that realization dawned on me, I got mad. I mean, I was furious that I had fallen for the devil's lies and deceptions. 
I scream with every ounce of strength in me. I don't care if this is death. I still believe there's a God. I knew I was dead, and this wasn't heaven. Instantly, what seemed to be like a gigantic hand reached down and snatched me out of that terrifying place. Immediately, I was back inside my body in the dressing room. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't in darkness anymore. Even though I had lost all hope of escaping, God had mercifully let me out. Then a giant hand plucked him into consciousness. This is an extra story from the Times. Foreman found himself on a locker room table surrounded by friends and staff members. He felt as if he were physically filled with the presence of a dying Christ. Living Christ would be better. He felt his forehead bleed, punched by a crown of thorns. His wrists, he believed, had been pierced by the nails of the cross. He said, I knew that Jesus Christ was coming alive in me. Now, remember, he just lost the fight. This is George Foreman. And he dies on the table. But when he gets up, he starts screaming, Hallelujah! I'm born again! He was naked. And he wanted to go outside. I got to tell everybody. He had no clothes on. I want to tell everybody. And my friends, that's what it's all about. That's what life is all about. It's not dying and going into a place that is described, not just by Foreman, but by this book, this Bible, where Esau, it says... He tried to get it back, and he couldn't. It was too late, and there will come a time when it's going to be too late. Too late. Too late for this nation. I'm not saying it is now, but there will come a time. It's too late. Too late to get yourself right with God. God was merciful to George Foreman. He became a preacher. They used to want to hear his testimony, and the boxing world knew right away something's changed about this man, who is noted by most boxing aficionados as the heaviest puncher ever. He had a jaw like granite. Yet now he's terrified. And now he's shouting, Hallelujah! The churches didn't really want him to preach. So you know what he did? Went out to the street corners. George Foreman, heavyweight champion of the world, standing on the street corner. Jesus saves! Jesus saves! Jesus saves! And that's what happens when you really have Jesus. That's what happens when you really have Jesus. So today, let's consider our lives before the Lord. And unlike what Gurnall said, or taking his words seriously, be hiding something, because nobody knows, and your reputation is still intact, with your Bible in your hand, but God says, no, no, get rid of it. For without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. As for me, I'm going to stick with the book. Amen. Originally, when I first came into ministry, I thought I'd be an evangelist going around the churches, but I now know that there's very few churches that I would go to. Don't want it. You got 10 minutes to speak. Forget about it. Don't even invite me. I'm not coming. In this hour of history, we need the preaching of the gospel, but more so, we need its application in our lives. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We need to look for little foxes, not just the big ones. The adultery, well, that's big. But we need to look for the pride and the arrogance and the lack of humility and other things that are not so easily seen. But God will be faithful to wash us again in the blood of the Lamb. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. We could say the only one that could actually knock George Foreman down was God. But in the end, as I shared with you last week, we put on the full armor, we will be standing. Father, I'm reminded of what is found in the text of the Old Testament scriptures. Thou hast exalted thy word even above thy name. No wonder the devil hates it so much. It's our roadmap. It's our guidance. It's our rule for faith and for practice. It's your word. So we come to you this morning, God, and only you know the hearts of men. I don't. I don't even know the depths of my own heart, as you tell me in the book of Jeremiah. But you do. Lord, I pray you cleanse us again in the blood of the Lamb. And let us not be keeping those things secret 
that you know about. But to live, as Robert A. Lee once said, with an approving conscience. There's nothing in our conscience that says, well, but rather that we can go before you, as the Apostle Paul said, having a conscience void of offense towards God and towards men. Lord, we need your help, as I prayed earlier. We need adults to be making sure their children get to church and hear the gospel. We need adults that are going to set an example of perfection. No, that comes in Jesus, but of diligence, of being full out, not a sellout. Help us, God. We see the signs. We know you're coming to judge the living and the dead. Let us not find our names in Matthew chapter 7, when you have people coming to you saying, we did this and that, we preached, we taught. And then you say, I never knew you. Let that not be our case. Rather, let us be those who, being doers of the word, have our houses built on a firm foundation. At any moment, if necessary, we could go out to the streets on the corner and start preaching Jesus. Father, help us today. Pour out of your spirit. Change hearts. Again, God, I don't know the hearts of the people. I don't know the depths of my own heart. But you do. Change us, O God. Continue to bring us along that path. And help us to say again, like the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to save us from that place that Foreman spoke about and saw or was in. The power of God to salvation to them that believe, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Help us, God, in this hour. As the time gets short, just help us. Father, we bless you and praise you for the day set aside by you for our refreshment, our rest. For us to be reminded, exhorted, and comforted too, and consoled. That everyone here who believes, those that are watching, those that are listening by way of radio who believe on you, will never see that place spoke of or testified by George Foreman and others and what's written in your word. We're saved, saved, saved. My last prayer, God, today is that you would help us to appreciate this fact, not be distracted by shiny objects all around us calling for our attention, but that we would look at you in Isaiah 26.3 be found in perfect peace. Cause us this week to be reminded to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength. And remind us that that is proven by how we love each other. And we give you all the praise and all the glory today. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Amen.